And I'm so glad to see so many faces today. We're having an atypical January again. What's going on here? We're in the 30s and 40s this week. You know, there's sun shining. It feels like Hawaii, maybe. But we'll take it. We'll take it because it could be a lot worse, right? And it could keep some of us away from, from here. So we're glad to be together. And um, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we started a new series called Walking with God. And the Lord put this on my heart in the early parts of the new year as if to say, this is something that's worthwhile. This is something we all need to put our minds around and, and me at the top of the list. Uh, you would think a pastor, maybe, maybe you think this, maybe you don't, has it all together. We, we don't. We're journeymen just like you. And so God has put this on my soul to study and it's been a benefit already for my soul and I hope it is for yours as well. Uh, we've done two lessons so far in this series and it's going to be a multi-week, maybe multi-month series. We've done... Uh, two so far, we did number one, created. We talked about how important creation is for walking with God and how significant that is. And last week, we started a two-part lesson called Invited that we're going to continue today. Part two of Invited. Maybe grab your sheet as you came in. I don't think our greeter lets you not grab a sheet, so good job, Haddon. Um, make sure you have your notes available. So if you're a note taker, you could follow along with us. We're going to be in Hebrews today. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be mainly in Hebrews chapter 10, but we'll dip into a little bit of chapter 9 and a couple other places in Hebrews so mostly in Hebrews today, if you, have, if you need a Bible, we have some Bibles back on the bookshelf. Uh, those are available for you to use. Thank you. Yes, she's showing the way. Appreciate that. And uh, you can use those Bibles. You can take those Bibles home if you need a Bible. And we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 today as we look at part two of Walking with God, Invited. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25 is where we're going to be today. Before we get there to the text, do you ever get invited to something special? If you ever get invited to something special, maybe it's a special birthday party, maybe it's an anniversary party, maybe it's something really elegant, and you have the opportunity then, as you get invited, to, to either say, yes, I will be there, RSVP, sign me up, I'm there, or to say, no, that's not really my thing, I'm not coming, because it's your option. If you get invited, you still have to say yes or no to that invitation, but sometimes you get really special invitations, and I'm going to give you a list of things, list of invitations that you should always accept, okay? If you get any of these invitations, and I've had some of these you should accept them. They're no-brainers. Just say yes every single time, okay? Here's, here's my list of things you should always accept if you get invited. Number one, if you're ever invited to sample cheesecake or meatballs, <laughs> you don't say no to that, okay? I don't care where you are. If someone's going to give you free cheesecake and meatballs, you say yes. You open your mouth. Uh, number two invitation you should always accept is being invited to pray at the Old Man of the Mountain Memorial Tribute, which I actually did. Only a few months into, my, into my, uh, my tenure here, I was invited to Concord to pray over the 20-year anniversary of the Old Man of the Mountain Memorial Tribute, and I had to say yes to that, even though I wasn't the person that deserved it the most. They wanted someone from the North Country, so I was able to represent the North Country and pray. I got to meet Governor Sununu, or better yet, he got to meet me. <laughs> so I'm sure he remembers that quite well. That was a special day. That's an invitation you should always accept. Number three invitation you should always accept is being invited to receive a refund check for anything. <laughs> if anyone wants to refund you and give you a refund check, you just say yes. You know, you ever get one of those things in the mail, like there's a lawsuit and you were like a customer during the time and some huge company got sued and they give you a check for like $1.67? <laughs> Cash that check. That's a free $1.67. Why not? Here's another invitation you should always accept is being invited to hear a story about how bad your wife's former boyfriends were. And that's happened to me on occasion. My in-laws will sit me down and say, you don't believe how bad these guys were before you. And I always pull up a chair for that. Because it's basically like a hidden compliment to me. 
In fact, I told Janine I should start sending these guys some Christmas cards every year because of how well they made me look. And so thank you to those ex-boyfriends. Uh, number five invitation you should always accept is being invited to take a nap chased with a cup of coffee. And sometimes my wife, she sees that I'm tired. She says, you know, you go lay down for a while and I will bring you in a cup of coffee when you're done napping. And I always give her kind of that like false humility and like, no, 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 you deserve it more. You, and then I pull it back like, oh yeah, maybe I should, maybe I should. Because uh, I, don't, I don't say no to those invitations. You're going to give me a nap and a cup of coffee, I'm going to take it every time. Number six invitation you should always accept is if anybody ever invites you to leave the south or the midwest for the north, yes, you take that invitation every single time. Move up here to the north country. That's a great thing, right? That's right. You guys have done that. Uh, so have I. Here's another invitation you'd always accept. I'm a father of eight children. If you're ever invited to snuggle with one of your kids, you say yes to that every single time, even if they only want you for your phone and your cookie, <laughs> which happens a lot. But I'll take it either way. I'll take that invitation every single time. Here's another one. Um, this one's a little bit specific, but makes sense to my world. If you're ever invited to accept a friend request from one Janine Thurmond, uh, that was her maiden name, my wife's maiden name, which I actually did in 2008, and that was the best friend request I ever accepted because we got married. So <laughs> in case you don't know the rest of the story. And so that invitation worked out really well. Here's another invitation you should always accept is being invited to serve at Crossroads Church. Wink, wink. I had to. I'm a company man. So if you ever get that invitation to serve at this wonderful church, right, David? You should take that invitation every single time. And this one is very specific, but actually happened to me. There's a little bit of a story and a background to this. But if you're ever invited to a church in Littleton while you're being interviewed at a church in Keene, you take that invitation, right? That actually happened. Uh, I was actually candidating on my way to Keene, New Hampshire, to candidate at a church. And I got a call from another New Hampshire number, from a little town in New Hampshire called Littleton. And it was Crossroads Church, Pastor Mark Clements on the phone, saying, we want you to come up and interview with us. And I, I, if you knew my journey here, I was looking for New England, a church in New England. And when a church from New Hampshire calls you, you answer it. And I'm so thankful that I did answer that call because God called us to hear Littleton and Crossroads Church. So there's many invitations in this world that you should accept. We're going to look at one today that's a no-brainer. It's obvious, and it's the covenant of God. If and when, because it is a when, you are invited to the covenant of God, we should always say yes. Amen? Amen. Always say yes. And that's where we're going today. If you have your Bibles, join me in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 19 to 25. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Hear the word of God. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Come on, screen. There we go. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It is being invited, part two, that we're looking at today, the covenant of God. We have a three-point outline we hope to get to. Number one, a strong access. Number two, a strong savior. And we'll finish on a strong motivation. Let's start with a strong access. Now, We've all been children before. You remember when you were a child? When you were a child, 
unfortunately, sometimes access was denied. I don't know why it is, but children sort of have to earn their stripes in order to get access sometimes. If you were ever one of those children at Thanksgiving where they had to pull the card table out for you and create kind of a kid's table. You guys remember who was, who was a part of that kid's table before? And you, you got your own space, which, which I guess is a good thing. You get to chat with kids about kids' stuff. But it felt like you were missing out on important conversations and decisions that needed to be made. And, and you felt like you were on the outcast on the other island. And uh, my, my uncle had this phrase that he would say. Because every year when, at Christmas time in Iowa, when we would visit there, they had like this annual Monopoly game. And all the adults would get together and play Monopoly, and they seemed to have a lot of fun with it. And the kids always wanted to get on, in on that. And my uncle always used to say this phrase. He used to say, children are to be seen and not heard. Yes. I think he was joking. I hope he was joking. But I'm not quite sure. Because access was forbidden for all children for that Monopoly game, and we were at the kids' table. And so if you're a child, you understand what that's like. Sometimes you can't do adult things. And that's sad, isn't it? Because you, you want to do things that adults do. You want to do everything. Sometimes adults are forbidden access as well. And maybe you guys have encountered this before, which is really weird because sometimes you're denied access to something that, own, that you own, that belongs to you. And uh, sometimes you forget your password and have to sign into your account and they have to make sure that you're not a robot, which is always flattering. Um, and so sometimes you get locked out and you have to reset your password. It's annoying to be denied access, right? It is in this life, but sometimes it happens. Well, if you're anything like me, and I know that you're not, but if you're anything like me, then you have a special thing, a special little pass that allows you places into places that other people can't go to. Did you know that? Did you know that I'm able to get to places and, and rooms and have invitations that the common person cannot because I'm a man of the cloth? Whatever that means. Um, but I can tell people that I'm clergy and they will let me in to certain places just because I'm clergy and I can flash my little card or my little badge and they'll let me right in. Access can be granted. That's always a special little thing. When they go, hey, hey, nobody, nobody can go back there. And I'm like, hey, I'm clergy. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm so sorry. And uh, you get to go back and you bless them as you leave. <laughs> but sometimes access is granted. Well, we have to set this up today. We're, we're reading from a book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews truly only makes sense if you understand the old... Hebrew system. The, the writer of Hebrews, which a lot of people believe to be the Apostle Paul, I can't validate that entirely, but the writer of Hebrews is writing to Hebrew Christians. And he's sort of connecting the old with the new. That's kind of what the book of Hebrews is all about. He's connecting how things used to be and how they are now. And so in an effort to do that, he has to sort of bring up and remind them of the Old Testament system. And maybe, maybe most of you know this already, maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but in the Old Testament days, they had something called a tabernacle, didn't they? A tabernacle was a glorified tent that they had to set up in order to worship God. And this tabernacle is kind of what you're picturing there, is a big tent, and a big tent with a courtyard there. And this courtyard sort of, or this, excuse me, this tabernacle had sort of three parts to it. They had this outer courtyard, whoops, had this outer courtyard where, the common Israelite could go and offer sacrifices and worship God. But it was a very indirect experience. They could offer their sacrifices, but they couldn't directly go to where God's presence was because his presence was back here in the most holy places of that tabernacle. And I'm going to take that little line away because if you can tell, there's something here that is sort of restricting access to the common Israelite, and that is a curtain. And that curtain was set up so that the common Israelite wouldn't walk back there haphazardly without invitation. Because they weren't allowed back there. They were re restricted access from going into the most holy places. Only the priests 
Only the high priests could go into the most holy places and offer the sacrifices to God that he deserved. The common Israelite was restricted from going back there. And that was kind of a sad thing, a kind of a sad system. But it was a really important foreshadowing of what was to come because God set it up that way. And it wasn't on accident. God set it up that way to show how special it is to be behind the curtain. How important it is to be behind the curtain. That, that once you have access behind the curtain, that is a very special thing because for generation after generation, Israelites were not allowed behind the curtain unless they were a priest or a high priest. When the tabernacle went away, they... Let's see if my picture will come up here. David, we're going to need a new computer. There we go. Uh, they had a temple. You guys remember the temple? The temple replaced the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a temporary place of worship. The temple was the permanent place of worship. They set up the temple. But the temple, even though it was permanent, you remember the temple Solomon built, it was set up in the same, the same way. There was an outer courtyard. And then to get into the most holy places, there was a curtain. And only the ones allowed into the curtain were the priests and the high priest to offer sacrifices and make sacrifices to the people and worship God. And it was a very indirect experience for the common Israelite to serve and worship their God. And that was the system they knew for generations. They had a God, a God who loved them, but they had a very indirect relationship with that God. The high priest and the priest were the ones that could connect directly to God. And that was the system these Israelites knew. And, and the writer of Hebrews is bringing that up today. Because he's reminding them what it was like when they had no access. Let's show the curtain there. That when they saw the curtain, that reminded them that they weren't allowed to come back to the holy places. The places where God's presence was most profoundly. I didn't grow up in that system. We don't have that system today, do we? You can walk right into the best places of the church building. Um, you can sit as close as you want. And you can pray. You can pray to God. You can worship God. And it's a very direct experience. And we're so blessed to have that experience, aren't we? That we can directly offer our prayers and our worship to God. Because the Israelites didn't know what that was like for many hundreds and thousands of years. But now we're going to Hebrews chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, flip back a chapter. We're going to talk about Hebrews chapter 9 here a little bit. Because the writer of Hebrews brings us up. Because he said something has changed. Something has changed. And this has been a game changer when this thing happened. He says in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 9, he says, but when... Christ, and of course he's talking about Jesus. When Christ appeared, when he appeared on the earth as a high priest of the good things that have come. When Jesus appeared upon this earth, the old passed away and the new came into existence. And he brought the good things from heaven down when Jesus came to this earth. He says, then through the greater and more perfect Tent. And yes, he's referring back to the tabernacle. That's what they would have been picturing with the word tent. They would have been picturing the tabernacle. He says, then through the greater and more perfect tent, notice the language, not made with hands. That is not of this creation. He's referring to a tent that isn't physical. A tent that is spiritual. When Jesus came and appeared as a high priest, he brought those good things down from heaven to this earth and he instituted a new tabernacle. A new temple, a new way of offering sacrifices to God, but this one isn't made with hands. It's not of this world. Christ brought it in a whole different way, and it says in verse 12, He entered that tent once for all into the holy places, into the presence of God, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Isn't that a powerful passage? My goodness, Jesus came from above, came from heaven, 
with the power of God. And he not only allowed us to have access to God, he set up a whole new system, a whole new covenant, a whole new method for us to worship God. And then he entered on our behalf once and for all. And he didn't bring blood of goats and calves this time. He brought his own blood. We'll get back to that here in a bit. Reading on, it says in verse 13, for the, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, because that's how you found sanctification and forgiveness back in the day. Animals, pure animals had to be killed and sacrificed so that our sins, the Israelite sins, could be purified and forgiven and they could have a right relationship with God again. So the blood of bulls and goats did that, but it did it very temporarily. And it did it for the physical nature of their ability to worship God. But what it didn't do is embed itself into the soul. And it also wasn't permanent. Every single year this process had to take place. But it was enough that God could accept their worship, could accept their praise, could accept their ability to be in his relationship. But then in verse 14, the writer says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, back in the day, of course, you had to have the old, the bulls and the goats sacrificed so that you could be forgiven, so that you could feel like you were back with God and together with God and purified once again. But the problem with the Old Testament system is as soon as you were purified, what happened that day? What happened that week? What happened going forward? We sinned again. People kept sinning. And the problem would start all the way over again. And so every single year, sins would pile up and the goats would have to be killed and the bulls would have to be killed and they'd offer these sacrifices to purify the flesh. But it never took care of the conscience. It never made you feel truly pure, feel truly forgiven, Feel truly holy because as soon as you sinned, you were stained again, right? But when the blood of Christ came into the new tent, the more perfect way, he offered himself without blemish to, notice it, purify our conscience from dead works so that we could serve the living God and do so in a right conscience. That is a really powerful thing to know. I don't know what you know about the conscience. David, you need to say something? <laughs> David's got that hillbilly still in him. Let's see if we got this uh, screen to show up here. I was going to show you a picture of the two lying next to each other because the blood of bulls and goats was the system for many, many generations and decades. And that picture is just not going to show up. And I paused the whole screen, I think. All right, we might, we might be going. There we go. There we go. See? Well, you don't know what's coming. I'm going to keep you on your toes today. It had to catch up with like 12 different clicks there. And that's, that's what the system that these people knew. The blood of bulls and goats offered on the altar, and then Jesus came with his own blood, and he ended all of it. He put an end to it. No longer is this a system. No longer are we doing this year after year. I'm going to go in, and I'm going to go in once for all. I'm going to take my own blood, because my blood is without blemish. My blood is pure. My blood is holy. My blood can not only purify the sins of the people for that year, my blood can purify the sins of the people for all time and can cleanse their conscience. What a powerful thing to know. So back in chapter 10, if you have your Bibles, you can bump forward to 10 again. In Hebrews 10, verses 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, based on that knowledge, since we have... Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't just say access. Because he could, right? Since we have access 
to enter the holy places. Because that would be powerful enough to go, man, I can go behind the curtain. Me, a common person, a sinful person, can go behind the curtain to worship my God. But the writer says, we don't have just access. What do we have? We have confidence to enter the holy places. Because I want you to picture yourself, if you didn't have confidence, and one day the priest and the high priest offers you behind the curtain, a little backstage pass, and says, come on, come check it out. How, how nervous you would feel to go, no, I don't belong here. I, I shouldn't be back here. Even if the high priest has given me access, I don't belong in the holy places. Based on our sinfulness, based on the blood of bulls and goats, it's not enough, is it? But when the blood of Jesus is sacrificed for our sins, we not only get access, we get confidence to enter the holy places thanks purely to his blood. That's how powerful and profound that blood is. It's a game changer. It changes everything for us. He says, by the new and living way that he opened with us, notice it, through the curtain. That is through his flesh. His flesh is the credit and the glory for why we have access and confidence to worship our God directly. Right? Isn't that right? The reason we can sit here today, the reason we can worship him and pray to him and hear from his word directly is because Jesus made it possible. He went through that curtain on our behalf and he offered up his own blood so that we would have confidence to enter those holy places. And if you remember when Jesus was crucified, something profound took place. There was an earthquake. And in Matthew 27, the, the reading says this, Then behold, the veil, that means the curtain of the temple, was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. And that ripping of that veil was very, very symbolic. It wasn't just, oh man, the curtain ripped, let's go put some duct tape on it. That was really profound because that meant access. And it happened as Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That curtain was torn, and it was torn for good. And that was God's message to his people that we can have access to his presence because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. Isn't that powerful? The curtain was gone. No longer a curtain. Because our Lord Jesus Christ has the key to the presence of God. And not only does he have the key, but he has the means, his own precious blood. And that's a powerful thing to know, that that curtain is down, never to be put back up again. If we have a relationship with God through Jesus, because that is the one powerful condition we need, we must have Jesus as our great high priest. If we believe in Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of the world, then we have access to the Almighty God. And even standing here, I, I can't put that into the right amount of words, how amazing that is, and how amazing that would have been for the Hebrews to understand, to go, wow, we have access, the curtain is down, we can go to God anytime we want. And, and we do, don't we? Do you ever pray to God in the middle of the night? Or while you're driving, or in the shower, or, or whenever you're hurting? Because I do, I pray to God whenever I want, because there's no curtain. And the blood of Jesus is upon my account and upon my soul, and I'm pure. Not based on my own deeds, but based on his precious blood. And that's a powerful thing to understand. It says in Hebrews 4, 16, a verse we're probably familiar with, the writer says, let us then, notice it with confidence, draw near. Near to who? Near to God. Near to our God. Near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Aren't you thankful for that? You ever been in need? <laughs> ever been in need this week? Ever been in need this past 24 hours? I have been. And guess what I do when I'm in need? I go right to the throne of grace. Directly. With confidence. 
Not because I'm so holy, certainly not, but because a profound sacrifice was made on my behalf that rips that curtain down and says, Todd can go to the Holy of Holies where God himself is and he can receive the mercy and the grace that he needs to overcome what's before him. And that's an amazing thing to know and it's all because of what Jesus has done. We've talked about a strong access. We've got to move a little fast today. Let's now talk about a strong Savior because that's the whole point. Now, you ever been in a jam? <laughs> ever been in a really big jam? Ever been in a traffic jam? Now, when the, when the, when the traffic hits Littleton, whoa. It's crazy, guys. I mean, you could be trapped for like 30 seconds. Maybe a minute. Maybe you can be locked down for a full minute. It gets bad there in Littleton. Um, I've experienced some of those traffic jams. It's like, man, put your car in park, turn it off, get comfortable. Because a minute later, that traffic's going to be moving. Well, sometimes you get in a jam. Sometimes it's a small jam. Sometimes it's a really big jam. You ever been in a really bad traffic jam? That takes hours, and you literally do put it into park and maybe turn the car off because you're going to be there a while. Sometimes we get into jams in life. Now, when I was growing up, I'm sure that one comes right up. The, imp the important screen comes right up. Um, when I was growing up, it, it, at least in the realm of TV and movies, if you ever got yourself into a sticky jam, there were two men that you wanted on your team. Two men that you would call. You guys know who these people are? Who's the one on the left? Rambo. 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 Not much nuance with Rambo. All he needs is a big gun. And who is this on the right? That's right. That's MacGyver. And these are the guys that I would have called back in the day if I had a jam. Now it's Joel. Uh, but back in the day, I would have called Rambo or MacGyver to get me out of a sticky jam because they're smart and they're strong and they're capable. At least that's how I thought growing up, going, man, if I could just be like one of those guys, if I would be really strong and really smart, I could get myself out of any sticky thing that I'm in. Well, you and I were in a really bad jam once, weren't we? You may know it based on your own soul. But even if you don't, the scripture tells us plainly how bad things were for us. In Ephesians chapter 2, the writer, he, Paul, this time says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's a pretty blunt word, isn't it? Dead. He could say badly off. He could say near death. He could say life support. But he doesn't. He said you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And now that's kind of a weird thing to put together. We're walking, but we're dead. It's like spiritual zombies. I mean, we're, we're alive in one sense. We're, we're dead in another. And that's how we were before God. We were so sinful so rebellious, so against God's will that God considered us dead. Dead. And what can you do for yourself? What help can be given to you if you're dead? Generally, we hold out hope as long as we can, as long as there's breath in the lungs, as long as there's a weak pulse at least. We hold out every hope we can. But once someone's dead, it's like the ship has sailed, it's over, there's nothing to be done. And if the scripture tells us we were dead in our trespasses, okay, I guess that's it. We're dead, there's nothing to be done. Who can remedy such a situation? Well, thankfully, we know the answer. Because our Savior is much different, isn't he? What's interesting about the coming of our Savior is that he came with pomp. If you remember, there were hosts of angels singing and a light star shining and a beautiful, glorious night. But at the same time, our Lord Jesus came by humble means, didn't he? He wasn't born to anyone prominent. His mother Mary, his father Joseph was a carpenter. They weren't rich, they weren't prominent. When he was born, he wasn't born in a palace like he deserves. He was born in a manger in a stable. And he was humble. And he didn't come much like the Savior people expected they were going to receive. 
And that, uh, many, many of the Jews struggled with that, going, no, that's not the Savior we pictured. We pictured someone with a red carpet and leading up to a palace and, and domineering and dominating and taking over Rome and all kinds of things that would really stamp that he's the Savior of the world. But our Savior didn't come like that. And the reason he didn't come like that, which Hebrews unlocks, is because he was going to fellowship with us. And if he was rich and prominent and powerful, we would have been too disconnected from that because we're not that. We're definitely not that spiritually if we're dead in our sins. But our Savior came to the world, and he came humbly, but he also came with a very powerful thing to accomplish. It says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 21, And since we have a great priest, it's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, I told you, only the priests were the ones that got to go back into the holy places. And Jesus came not only as the Savior, but he also came as our great priest so that he could reign over the house of God, and so that he could let us, in verse 22, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, notice it, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Our great high priest did not bring his own sacrifices in to the Holy of Holies. He was the sacrifice. And he didn't do it for his own sins. Even the high priests back in the day were sinners. So they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as the sins of the people, but not our great priest. Our great priest came in with no blemishes, every, did everything according to the will of God, and then he took his own precious blood and he sprinkled our bodies and our hearts clean to purify us from head to toe. And I put that little phrase, this is an important phrase, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Are we aware of the conscience? Right? We have our conscience working 24-7. Well, maybe not while we're asleep, but maybe even then. Our conscience is working, and it's, it's working to help us. Right Now, we've heard some weird depictions about the conscience, haven't we? If you watch cartoons or movies, the conscience, they'll bring it up every now and then. And it's typically like what you see on the right here. There's like a, a, an angel on one shoulder, and there's a devil on the other shoulder, and having like a debate between what you should do, and your conscience is trying to help be your guide. And the world is trying to sort that out, which is always a little silly when they try to do that. But the conscience, I believe, is given to us from God. Given to us from God to let us know the difference between right and wrong. And the more knowledge you learn about God, the more accurate that conscience can be. And that conscience is important. The problem with having a conscience is when we're wrong, we know it. And that's a good thing that we know it. It's a bad thing when you stop knowing it. But when you have a conscience and you've done something evil, your conscience is against you. And if you've ever had your conscience against you, you know what that feels like. It doesn't feel good, does it? If you've sinned, if you've sinned with premeditation and you've broken the commandment of God and you know what you've done, that conscience is against you and God has built it that way. But I want to show you a verse that sort of correlates to what the writer of Hebrews just said. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter now writing, and he's referring to baptism. But what he's not referring to is the outward baptism that we're thinking of when we hear the word baptism. We're thinking of when someone gets baptized into a tank of water and they represent that they are a child of God, they are a follower of Jesus Christ. Peter is talking about a different baptism here. He's talking about an inward baptism. An inward baptism that takes place much before the outward baptism ever makes sense. He says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, because outward baptism doesn't save anybody, does it? Outward baptism is simply a reflection of what has already taken place within the soul. But inward baptism does save you. 
Because that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when that heart is cleansed from the blood of Christ. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, because that's not, that's not enough for us to receive the forgiveness that we need. But notice it, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only does it purify us legally in the eyes of God, but it purifies our conscience to know that we are forgiven and we are cleansed. In the eyes of God, we are clean. And if you're sitting here today, I believe that you know that. If you've been in Christianity long enough, that is why you have a relationship with God at all, because you understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is so profound that it could clean a sinner even like me. Isn't that your story? I am a great sinner, but my Savior is even greater than my sin. His grace overcomes my sin, and he can cleanse the filthiest of sinner. And Peter's writing this. He was a sinner. Paul was writing Ephesians. He was a sinner. The writer of Hebrews was a sinner. Those people were great sinners as well, but God had cleansed them inward and outward based on that precious blood. So notice Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. We read this already, but notice what it says again. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Because if our conscience is not clear, if our conscience is not purified, we won't serve God. We won't serve God. And if you've ever had your conscience against you, that's the last thing on your mind, isn't it? I can't serve God. Look what I've just done. Look how I just acted. There's shame and guilt attached to sin, and there's supposed to be, because it's shameful. But what God did was so profound with Jesus Christ is he took all of that sin and he nailed it to the cross. He said, from now on, even when you sin, you can find purification. You can find forgiveness. You can find restoration immediately by owning up to that sin and coming in the precious name of Jesus Christ because my son was sent to purify your conscience so that you could serve the living God. The amount of things that Jesus accomplished in that one sacrifice is astonishing. We often think about, oh yeah, he just got me into heaven. He just gave me the ticket to heaven when he died on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of heaven. But it's much more than that, isn't it? He purified our conscience. He saved our souls. He allowed us to get back up and to get back in the race and serve our God with the gifts and abilities that he's given us because our God is worthy of it. And I'm so thankful that he did that. Because I can go to God now, not only cleansed from my sins, but my conscience is pure before him. And this is what makes sense of this verse in the Old Testament. It says, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Do you know that's what your account looks like if you have Jesus Christ? Your account before God is whiter than snow. Are your deeds whiter than snow? Absolutely not. Our deeds have been dirty. So much dirty we don't want to look at it. But now, because of the sacrifice and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to God clean. And I can't tell you how profound that is for someone who knows how dirty he was. 
for me to be able to come to God and do exactly what I'm doing here today and say, God, I'm going to offer up my sacrifice to you, my gifts to you, not because I deserve to be, but because I am clean and because you deserve it. And I'm so thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished that on my behalf. So something profound took place when Jesus did that. We all start sinners. We would all agree with that, I hope. If I went around the room, we would all say 100% of us, we, we are sinners. Sinners by nature. And don't ask me how sinful I was because it's really bad. But we would all say we're sinners. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he went up that hill of Calvary. And when he resurrected from the grave three days later, did you know he changed our nature? Did you know that? By purifying us and cleansing our conscience and cleansing our soul, he actually changed our nature from sinner to a term called saint. Now, the word saint is a little bit confused in the religious culture that we live in because there's some denominations that think you have to sort of earn up to that and work your way up to sainthood. But according to the Bible, every sinner who trusts in Jesus Christ is made a saint. Did you know that? So if you've trusted in Jesus Christ to be your savior from your sins, you're a saint right now. Not because you deserve to be a saint, but because God has made it that way. He has changed our nature. Why would he do that? So that we know that we have access to our God. So that we know that we can serve our God because he not only just took our sins away, he completely changed our nature. So we are no longer bound to those sins, are we? And we're going to talk about that more next week. We are no longer bound to the sins that once held us under slavery. We can stand up to those sins. Did you know that? We don't have to commit those sins like we used to anymore because God has changed our nature. And we find this most prominently in 2 Corinthians 5, where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's the one important condition, he is, say it with me, a new creation. He didn't say tweaked, modified, slightly nudged in the right direction. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. I mean, you've been recreated by God. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Do you know that? Do you know that you have a new nature, a new relationship with God, all based on the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that's powerful to know. That means that old Todd doesn't exist anymore. And as much as the devil wants to make me think that he does, and he's right around the corner, and I'm basically that, and I'm a fraud standing up here today preaching to you because old Todd is still here, and he's never going to change, the scripture says opposite, doesn't it? That old, old Todd is dead. As soon as he was baptized inwardly, old Todd died, and new Todd was made. And that new Todd has an ability to have a clear conscience and serve the living God. And it's all a credit to Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 2, I told you we're jumping around Hebrews a little bit today. The writer says in chapter 2, verses 17, Therefore he had to, speaking of Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become, yes, a high priest, but notice it, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation payment for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Did you know our Lord Jesus not only offers us forgiveness and salvation, but understanding and mercy? And that, that answers the question for why did he come in a humble way? Why did Jesus come in a manger? Why did Jesus come to a carpenter's son? Why was Jesus not rich and in a palace? Why? Because he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he could show us mercy. He could say to us, I understand how hard it is. I've been there, and I understand what you're going through, and I have mercy for you. 
and I have cleansing for you. And I have the ability to have your sins removed and for you to serve God once again because I've been there and I came to help you in every respect. What a powerful thing to know. And we sing about the Savior, and we should. And I love this lyric from this song. It says, Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save. Forever author of salvation, he rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. Man, do you believe that? Death doesn't own you any longer. Death is not your final chapter. You can stand up to death. You can stand up to the devil. You can stand up to your old sins and say, you don't own me any longer. In the eyes of God, I am cleansed and I have access to the God of the universe to help me. And I can serve him and I will serve him for the remainder of my days. What a powerful thing to know. A strong access, a strong savior, strong enough to take our chains away. The chains that once held us down, the sins that once held us down, he removed those chains. My chains are gone. We've been set free. He says in Hebrews chapter 10, our passage, he says in verse 23, let us then hold fast our confession. Don't lose your hope. Don't lose that confidence that you have in your Savior because he is a strong Savior. Hold fast to the confession of Jesus Christ of our hope without wavering. Don't ever waver that your Savior is strong enough. For he who promised is faithful. And all you got to do is take it to the bank and say, God, I'm taking your own words and I'm taking them before you that yes, I am what I am, but now because of what Jesus Christ has done, I am your child, I am a saint, and I'm here to serve you. And therefore, I'm going to ask for your mercy and grace in order to accomplish that. That is indeed a strong Savior. And that therefore, Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because I am strong, because I am faithful, because I am merciful, because I understand, and because of my great covenant that I'm inviting you today, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. We talked about a strong access and a strong Savior. Let's finish on a strong motivation. I've got to move quickly through this one, but <laughs> I have eight kids. As you know, I keep bringing that up, but it kind of defines what I, what I do at home. And my kids, as most kids, struggle eating the right things. Probably adults do too, if we're honest. Yeah. Um, but we, we end up having these sort of dilemmas with our children that we give them something healthy and they kind of look like the kid on the left. Because there's no motivation to eat that, right? And they end up sitting there for, for 30 minutes to an hour just staring at this food like, please turn into chocolate. And it never does. And it gets cold and it gets weird and we keep making them try to eat it. Because there's no motivation. They don't want to eat healthy broccoli. But when we give them something yummy, like chocolate over here, they dive right in. I don't have to command them at all to eat their candy. You know that? I don't think I've ever done that. I don't think I've ever commanded my children to eat their candy. Now you finish your candy, young boy. Or no broccoli for you. It never goes that way. Because there's great motivation behind it. They stuff it right in their face because, man, that's good, that's tasty. And over here, not so much. Well, I told you, adults sometimes have to be motivated as well. And I kind of flirted with this in my icebreaker. But um, I've mentioned this before. But for 10 years of our lives in ministry, we desired to serve in New England. And we didn't know how that would take place, how God would make that happen. Because at that time, we lived in Michigan. And our ministry was going great. We loved it. But we always had this little thing in our head that said, man, if we could ever get an opportunity to serve in New England, we would love to. And then wouldn't you know it, during my journey of finding our next ministry, and we had churches all over the map. We had churches in Illinois looking at us, in New Jersey, in Washington State, in Canada, in Pennsylvania looking at us. 
in one month time, I got two calls from two churches in New Hampshire. And every, I told you, just like, just like my list, when I got a call from New Hampshire, I answered that phone call. And I remember the one day, and this is kind of a weird story, because we were moving into a new place, and I got a call, and it was one of those times it was really bad to take a call. Like, I had something in my arms, and I'm moving, and I'm out of breath, but it said New Hampshire. <laughs> and I got a call from New Hampshire, and I knew that I had applied to a couple churches in New Hampshire, and I said, Janine, I got to take this. So I went into one of the bedrooms, I shut the door, and I answered it, and it was a church from New Hampshire saying, hey, listen, we want to invite you up to interview and to, to preach. And I said, yes. I said, of course, we'd love to. And that was the church I didn't go to. <laughs> but thankfully, there was a church right around the corner, Crossroads Church of Littleton, that called me and said, we'd like to invite you up to preach and to interview you. And I just remember, man, could this actually happen? I mean, could this actually happen? This long 10-year dream of mine actually to take place that I could serve the Lord in New England? And then, and then it did happen. And God invited us here. And it was so, such a, a wonderful motivation because we were tired at the end of that journey. We didn't have much in the tank. Our fuel was low. We were on fumes. But the fact that we were moving to New England to serve our Lord, that was all the motivation we needed to get up and to move and to lift couches again and pack a truck again and tell our kids to, to get ready to move to another state because it took a lot of work and we needed a lot of motivation to do that. What is the motivation in the covenant? What's the motivation to serve our God? It's him. It's that simple. It's him. There is no motivation outside of God because there doesn't need to be. God is all the motivation. And if you've been in Christianity long enough, you know that to be true, that all the motivation for serving our God does not come from the wonderful church building you get to meet in or the wonderful church people you get to worship with. It doesn't come from your own abilities. It doesn't come from, from all people treating you nice and everything going easy. What does it come from? It comes from the Lord himself. When he tells you and reminds you, much like he is today, I love you, and I'm not coy about it. And I've invited you into the eternal covenant because I want to be with you forever. And I've died for you. And I rose again for you. And I'm your great high priest. And I've cleansed your conscience. And I've allowed you to serve God. I've allowed you access into the throne room of God, all because I love you. Because then God asks us to obey and follow Jesus Christ. And it's like, man, I... I liked the first part. I don't know if I like that second part. That second part's going to be hard. But what's the motivation to do that? It's God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, or one condition to entering this covenant, is you must believe, you must receive, you must understand that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world. There is no other. There is no other method. There's nothing to fall back on. Unless we have Jesus Christ, we're all doomed because of our sins. But because the Son of God came, everyone who believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's like God wanted to motivate us immediately into this covenant to say, not only should you get into this covenant, but everything that I ask you to do, you should remember that motivation. Going back to Ephesians chapter 2, there Paul, the, Paul the Apostle speaking, he said, but God, this is right after he told us, Ephesians 2, 1, you're dead in your sins in which you once walked. Three verses later, he said, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were dead, but our God is rich in mercy. And because our God is rich in mercy, he's loved us with an eternal love. And because he loved us with an eternal love, he sent his son to die for us even while we were dead so that we could be saved and with him 
forever. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says it this way. He said, He, God, predestined us. That means before the world began. He predestined us, notice it, for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Did you know that? God adopted you before you were alive? Before you even sinned, before you made a mess of your life, God says they're mine. They're my child. I love them. I have predestined them to receive this grace, to know my son, and to follow in his ways according to his glorious grace. That's how much our God loves us. And he's rolled out the red carpet for us all. Do we deserve it? No, we don't. I definitely don't. I do not deserve God's grace, God's kindness, God's mercy. But not only have I received it, but he's inviting us today to his beautiful eternal covenant saying, I want you and I want you to be with me forever. And God's not coy about it. He's inviting every single person in this room to experience that covenant. And this is how our passage finishes in chapter 10, verses 24. He says, if you're motivated by now, if you understand the strong access you have and the strong Savior and the strong God, the beautiful God who loves you, in verse 24, he says, Let us, then, us who have been redeemed, us who have been saved, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Why? Because our God's worthy of it. Our God is worthy of love and good works. Because he gave us love and good works, didn't he? That's why we're sitting here today. That's why we're alive today. Because our God invited us into his covenant with his love and his good works. And then as he invites us in, he says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. I think the writer of Hebrews must have known our culture when he wrote that because it seems like today everyone's finding excuses to stay away from church. Man, man if the stars align and everything's right in my world, yeah, I'll probably go to church. Uh, but everything's got to go right, Joel, everything. I mean, I've got to be healthy. The kids got to be well. I, there had to be no drama last night or this morning. If everything goes well, yeah, yeah, I'll probably go to church then. And that's not what the Hebrews is saying. He's saying, no, listen, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? The day when our Lord returns. The same Lord that purchased us back from slavery into the covenant of God is coming back to retrieve us one day. Where do you think he wants to find us? Love, good works, and gathering together, right? It's that simple. It's that simple. Love, good works, and gathering together. That's what our Lord expects of us in this covenant because it's so obvious based on what he's done for us. And what's the motivation to do those things? It's Jesus himself. If you need motivation in the Christian life, look no further than Jesus. Don't look to your pastor. Don't look to your church. Don't look to your friends and your family. Look to the one who made it all possible. And you will be encouraged to say Jesus is worthy of my everything. And I remember when I finally, finally said that after a long, long time of wrestling with that concept, and I finally said, I get it. I get it. You are. You are. I was convinced for the first time in my life that Jesus was worthy of my everything, and that's when I gave him a blank check. And I said, God, wherever you want me to go, I will go. Because as the artist Fernando Ortega said, he said, you can have all this world just give me Jesus. You can have everything. 
The world can have whatever they want from this world, but I only need one. As long as I have Jesus, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. As long as he is with me. And I hope you can say that as well today. What's the point? Let's finish our application before we close today. Number one application that we can draw and take home from today is that God's covenant was designed for all of us to be loved by God and to love God for all eternity. It's that simple. That's what a covenant is. God wants to love us. I mean, that's it. That's, that's the fine print. I want to love you for the rest of eternity. And I want to give you the opportunity to love me as well because that's what it is in a covenant. It's a two-way street of love. We not only get to be loved, but we get to love. And I think getting to love God is a tremendous privilege and gift from God that I can serve God, that I can love my God. Number two is once inside the covenant, did you notice we can never be harmed, never be stolen away, never be kicked out? Where else can you find that? I've been kicked out a lot, a lot of places growing up. Um, but God says, once you're inside the covenant, I will love you forever. You will be mine and I will be yours. And what an amazing security that is. I can't find that security anywhere else in this life. And number three, Jesus is the one who made it all possible. Therefore, God demands that Jesus receives all of us. And if that sounds like too much to give Jesus, I don't think you know him. I don't think you know him yet. Because I didn't. And Jesus said, listen, I want all of you. And I said, I don't think I'm ready to give all of me. And then I got to know Jesus. And I got to know his love, and I got to know his covenant, and I got to know the book of Hebrews. And the light bulb went on, and I said, of course, of course you deserve it all, Jesus. I will give you everything because you are worthy of it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And now it comes down to us, because that's how we started this thing. You've been given an invitation, so have I. And I think many in this room have already accepted this invitation, saying, I'm in. If my God is willing to love me like that, I'm in. No matter what it requires of me, I'm in. But some may be sitting here today who haven't accepted that invitation yet. And the offer is given to you today, January 28th, 2024, to be accepted into the covenant of God, to be loved and to love God for the rest of eternity. Where else can you find such security, such love, such forgiveness, such cleansing, such hope, such peace, such joy? And the answer is nowhere. But that is for your soul to answer before the Lord. And I, I hope that you would answer that question today because you will remember where you were when you said yes to that invitation. And I know some of you do remember where you were. So that is the covenant that we've been invited into today. And I praise the Lord for that covenant. And I thank you for your partnership in that covenant as well. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, it's, it's hard to find the words to say thank you for what you've offered to us. We don't deserve your grace or your mercy. We don't deserve access into the Holy of Holies. We don't deserve to be children of God. Father, I'm at the top of that list. I don't deserve to be a pastor. I don't deserve to serve you. But Father, you have done something remarkable by sending your Son to die for us and to rise again from the grave and, and, and to be loved by you and to be in a covenant with you and to serve you and to obey you and to worship you and to be protected by you for all of eternity. Father, I pray for the souls in this room who may not know you that they would today look upon Jesus Christ and say, he is everything. He's given everything, and therefore he deserves my everything. Father, I pray for those souls that today would be the day that they say yes to the covenant of God for your glory, by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us one more time?